hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and I'm always here, so you guys know me. But I would like to introduce our guests for this week. Why don't we start with Abel, and then Charlie, and then Jolene? Sure. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me, Caitlin. It's good to be here. I'm an author of seven books. I write across uh, fiction and nonfiction. I've got a, started out with a memoir and wrote four relationship guides, and I've got two novels as well. Two of my books were t- traditionally published, but since then I've gone self-published and uh, never looked back. I'm looking forward to some lively discussion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so my name is Charlie Holmberg. I write books. <laughs> no, um, I have. I am a, a fantasy writer. I write young adult and adult novels, and I am published through the traditional branch of Amazon Publishing. But my latest book, which I happen to have right here, Selfish Plug, um, is actually through an indie press. So, no, 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 no. There's my contribution. Didn't that book just come out like last week or two weeks ago? Yeah, it did. My mom-in-law's birthday. All right, Jolene. I actually honestly don't know how many books I have published. I've done traditional. I started with Cedar Fort, and I've also published through uh, Tribute Books, which was a smaller publisher. Albert Whitman Teen is where the majority of my books have come out, Young Adult Contemporary, and Simon Pulse as well. And then in the middle of those and around those between hiring and firing agents and everything else, I have self-published a few. And they're kind of my uh, my break books, my fun books that I do on my own. So I've got fingers and toes in everywhere. You have something at Entangled too, don't you? Oh, I do. Yes, I do. I have one with Entangled as well. Is that I, the don't, I don't know. I probably should have written down my stats, right, before I introduced myself. <laughs> Okay, well, we are talking about publishing models today, if you haven't noticed. We are going to talk a little bit about what it's like to be self-published or what kind of work goes into self-publishing, also smaller press, and then the bigger presses, too. And then we wanted to throw Charlie in there because she's a slightly different take on traditional publishing. And then you also have the indie publishing stuff. I didn't realize that one was indie published, Charlie. Probably. So let's, let's talk about how we got to where we are. So do you guys, Abel, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got to your traditionally published books and then also your indie stuff? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I started writing, this is back, you know, before, you know, Amazon and self-publishing was really big. And so when I first started, really the only way to go was traditional publishing, so to speak. So um, I got my first book contract back like in 2006, 2007 with uh, Cedar Fort. It was a memoir. And then my second book, came out two, three years later. And at that time, self-publishing was just kind of, you know, at least with the, with the Amazon platform, was just kind of taken off. And I wasn't sure what to do. I decided to, you know, again, move forward, do a traditional route. And then by the time my third book was done, I had a contract for that. But, you know, I sat on the contract for a month and really didn't feel good about signing it. And tur- I turned down the contract and dove into doing it myself. And it's been great since then. And also, I guess also since then, I've got my rights back to my first two books and I've reself published them and uh, sold more books and made more money on them going that route. All right. How about you, Charlie? So I did all of mine the standard traditional way. So I queried a ton of agents with a ton of books and I eventually got picked up out of the slush pile and went on submission to a bunch of different publishers. And we ended up going with 47 North 
which is the traditional imprint of Amazon Publishing. So it is a traditional publisher, but it is a little bit different from other traditional publishers. Seven of my eight books are all through them. And when we showed them Veins of Gold, which is my newest book, uh, they turned it down and I'm not super shocked. It's a little bit of a quieter book and I kind of pulled a Dan Wells and where I have like three genres in it. And so it's like, where do you shelf this? And so I actually had Heather Moore, H.B. Moore, uh, she also publishes under, contact me. She runs an indie press called Mere Press and said that she'd be willing to take the book on. And so I had a chat with her and it was, it's ended up being really, really nice because it's basically kind of indie publishing, but I still don't have to do the work myself because I'm like able, I'm like, that thumbs it up. I'm not good at that stuff. And so we went through her and it's, it's been a really good experience to be able to, you know, the great thing about having indie publishing, it's an option is that you can find a place for these, for these books that don't really fit on a shelf at Barnes and Noble. Okay. How about you, Jolene? Well, um, I, I wrote a really terrible book, my first book, and I queried it far and wide, and then I realized that it was terrible. <laughs> like every author's Everyone does. goes that route. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So that's fine. And then I remember thinking, you know, a good way to get some publication credentials is to maybe try for a smaller press rather than an agent. And so like AWOL, I started out at Cedar Fort. My first book was published with Cedar Fort, and I got an agent shortly after. <clears throat> And we sold to a small press and we sold to Entangled when they were first getting, when they had just uh, signed with Macmillan for distribution um, for a young adult there. And I fired one agent and I had a couple projects that were done and ready. And a good friend of mine had found some success independently publishing and she kind of walked me through the process. And so I did that for a few books while I looked for another agent and then I signed with my current agent and she's made my deal since then with Simon Pulse and Albert Whitman. That's my, my publishing journey. And I, I will second what Charlie said that when you write a book where the feedback is all really positive, but people aren't quite sure what to do with it, it's really fun to be able to independently publish those kinds of things. I think you can find a reader for just about anything. So. That's so true. And we live in such a great time where that is an actual viable option where you can actually get readers. You can get their attention now where you probably couldn't have like 15, 20 years ago. One of my favorite blog posts by Chuck Wendig, and he was talking about mid-career authors. And he was saying, there are so many avenues of publication out there right now. Like, why not? Why not take advantage of some of that? So I cling to that. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the differences between them. So some of us have to go through like acquisitions and then able and when you're self-publishing or when you're doing the indie press, what does it actually look like on the ground? What do you have to do in order to get your book from like being written to being in front of a reader? Let's start with you, Abel. When you go the indie route, really the biggest, I mean, it's, I mean, you're really in charge of it, everything. And I think it's not only writing the book, but you're trying to go out there and find an editor uh, that you can work with, or maybe two editors, depending on how you want to do it. You're going out there to find cover designers. So you got to do a lot of the uh, legwork yourself. But once you kind of do that legwork, like when I publish now, I have editors and cover designers that I have good relationships with. And so it's not, you know, I don't have to do a lot of the finding. I've worked with them. I trust them. It's kind of like running your own business in a sense is that you've got to take on a lot of the work. You've got to take on a lot of the responsibility. And in the end, you're the one that's responsible for the uh, final product. It's not, you know, you can't blame anything on the editor or the designer or people that you didn't have, you know, like with a publishing house. 
you know, they'll assign people and, you know, they'll kind of do their own their own thing and they might demand changes. And in the end, you know, however the final product turns out, it's your result. It's your product. I would just say that the biggest challenge, I think, is finding the right editor, finding an editor that you can work with and an editor that's, that's going to get good feedback. If you can find that person, I'd say you're 90% of the way there to really having a, a good book that'll sell and resonate with people. And if I could add that, I think that the the worst thing somebody who wants to self-publish could do is not put in that effort and unfortunately the cash to get a great cover designer and a great editor. And especially because regardless of how you publish, when your book is out, everything is on you. When you have a bad cover, they're like, oh, this author has a bad cover. They don't look up who the artist is. When you have bad editing, they judge that on you. They don't look up who the editor is and say, oh, the editor is bad. Like, it'll be, it's all on you. Yeah, and also because there are so many, so many books out there that are self-published, you have to be super professional and, and have a great cover. And you have to stick out for the same reasons that any traditional book does. I mean, half of the the difficulty of being an author is getting people to read your book. And so you have to stick out, right? Yeah. Well, and I love that nobody, not nobody, but there are a lot of people who don't realize that Charlie's latest book, she has done on her own because her no, Heather did. <laughs> she, you know, it's branded and it looks just like it's come out with her, the others. And that's, I think the difference, <laughs> like Abel said, finding people that are professionals and are really good at their job so that it doesn't look like, you know, you used pick monkey to put a cover together and, mm-hmm. and slapped it up. So, yeah, I actually, for the cover designer, I actually, I saw one of Amber Argyle's books and she does self-publishing and I loved her cover. Like she does it right. And I was like, who is the cover designer? And I stole her. <laughs> I don't know. When you're looking on Amazon, so I had Kindle Unlimited for a little while and you look on Amazon and I can pinpoint that self-published, that self-published, that self-published just from the cover. But then like there have been times where I pick up a book, I'm like, this is amazing. I'm like, and I go to look at the publisher and there's, there isn't one. I'm like, oh, this is self-published. It blows my mind because there is still kind of a stigma. And so if you can, almost like you have to trick somebody to make you think that it isn't. And it's just like, wow, this person did it right. So, well, let's talk about the different model. Like, Carly, how does it go for you when you're working with 47 North? So the way it goes for me is probably very similar to the way it goes for you. So, you know, you go through acquisitions, you have to get your book approved. I, for the last couple books I've had, I've had two editors on it. So I have my editor, who's my acquisitions editor as well. He will read my book and write me up a... Uh, editorial letter. And then I have a dev editor who's been with me on every book except for my first and my last. And she actually will kind of like go in and she writes her own editorial letter and goes in and like tells me all the changes I have to do. And then I do it and we send it back and then it comes back for copy edits and we do the proofreads and, and everything and it comes out. But with Amazon, I can publish a lot faster than other ones. So my normal turnaround time is about one year. Whereas I believe the standard for other traditional publishers is two years. And so I can get my books out, pop, pop, pop. And when I have a trilogy, like books of my Paper Magician trilogy came out within a year. And so, which is great. Some people, I guess you shake your head like, that's terrible <laughs> some people. But for me, I love it because like, I, I can write fast and I can keep up with it. And so it's really great. And with Amazon, I know they pay differently. Their royalties and stuff are skewed a little differently than most traditional houses. And they also, this is a great thing, they pay me once a month instead of every six months, which is awesome. But because it's Amazon, it's really hard to get into bookstores 
because Amazon's such a big competitor. And so I have to tell all my readers, like, go wine at your local Barnes and Noble so they'll stock me. It's really hard to get into bookstores. I've been at many events where the local bookseller refuses to carry my books because I'm an Amazon author. So that's the downside. The two of you who have been at smaller publishers, is that any different? Do you, you get know, the full like developmental editor and then like the copy edits and past pages and all of that? Usually that's, I mean, that's my experience so far. It's so drastically different from smaller press to smaller press. And it's even different. You know, my experience with Entangled is not going to be the next person's experience with Entangled. It's really tricky. I do find Albert Whitman and Simon Fulce. I did a lot of rounds on on all the books there. I do one or two, usually two of developmental, one or two line edits, and then copy, and then my final galley proofs. And I didn't have that with the two smaller presses. I didn't have that with Cedar Fort. I got... Uh, we have opinions on Cedar Fort. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, how do I tread carefully here? This was a long time ago. That will absolve me of something. But I basically... I heard from my editor and she said, oh, I'll be giving you notes soon. And then I basically, all I got was um, my final book, like the PDF. Oh, wow. Me to like do a list of corrections on. And then, you know, I pair that with, with Simon Pulse where I do round after round after round. Or when I do things on my own, I, I do the same that I would do with, you know, with Pulse or with Albert Whitman, where you make connections with editors that are good for you and, and go through the same rounds that I would go through with the traditional. So, but I've heard some people with smaller presses love it because they feel like they get a little bit more individualized attention. So, and then with a the larger publisher, it's, it's hit and miss. If you're their lead title, you get all the goodies. And if you're not, you get none of the goodies. So <laughs> that gets tricky too. It's easy to get buried at a big publisher. It's like a soap opera. <laughs> it's like a soap opera. It's like focus in on the woman looking away. And it's like, oh, I'm not going to do social media marketing. For you. <laughs> well, and I remember telling a friend of mine, like, oh, you know, I actually don't mind my smaller advances from Albert Whitman versus Simon Pulse because then I get. I get royalties, which is really nice because it's more and more common now for people to not earn out their advance. And then I remember she said to me, yeah, but they don't have a whole lot at stake then if they're not giving you more money up front. And so on my last book, I asked for more. But, you know, that's one of those tricky balance things where I felt like I had been there long enough that I could ask for more. But at the same time, um, when you're working with the press, you know, like them or like Soho, that's or source books that's bigger, but not part of one of the big five there's always that, okay, I don't want to make anybody upset and I don't know how much they can afford. But at the same time, it's nice to know that they have enough on the line that they're going to put some work behind you. That's a really tough balance because you can also go in the other direction where you get an advance that's really big and then you get not even close to earning out and then they won't buy any more books for right. you. Yeah. Like, oh, we lost money on her last time. We're done. Yeah. And I know Albert Whitman won't lose money on me because their library connection is good. So I feel like at, they'll even if nobody else buys my book but libraries, <laughs> they'll still make their money back. So I feel like if you're working with smaller presses, you probably still have to do not as much legwork as you do if you are working by yourself, but you still probably end up needing to like do some editing on your own or even hiring an editor on your own if it's a small enough if it's small like Cedar Fort. Is that safe to say? It is safe to say that if I went with a smaller publisher again, that I would hire an editor before I I went. So I, I had my book pretty much at a at a place where I would 
self-publish it. But like, like Abel said before, like I started self-publishing and I never looked back. I, I have my first book with Cedar Fort and they offered to pick up the sequel and I decided to do it on my own. And I, I made a lot more money with the sequel than I did with the original because I was able to keep all of that. And there was more editing than one round. (laughs) But Cedar Fort can get into Costco. (laughs) I've seen Cedar Fort books in Costco. It's probably the only reason I'm still making money on my first book because it was so long ago. <laughs> well, it's it's true that small publishers sometimes have relationships with like retailers in that area, but their distribution isn't as large as a bigger publisher. So you don't have the benefits of like Simon Pulse who can put their fingers in every Barnes and Noble in the country. Oh, but I mean, like James Dashner and Ali Condi, they both started at a small publisher and that yeah. book, yeah. they sold the rights to bigger publishers later. So, you know, you can still be very successful going with a small press. It's true. Well, and actually, even, yeah, <laughs> even with self-published books, I mean, The Martian was self-published and it got oh, yeah. picked up by a big publisher later after it made millions of dollars. So why yes. how much money? But uh, Well, I was going to say, I think it comes back to, again, I think really good books will rise to the top and it doesn't matter if they're self-published or with a small press or with a big press. I think if you got a, a, a really good story or, uh, you know, whatever you're trying to to sell, if it's, um, I, I, I personally don't think readers care that much where it's published. They're just looking for, at least in the realm of fiction, they're looking for a good story. And, and if you can tell that story, uh, the platform, you know, whether it's self or small or big publisher or however you're doing it, the reader doesn't care. Probably depends on your readership too, because if you're doing middle grade and like picture books, then it's really hard to get to those readers because you go through their parents. I would never recommend indie publishing for children's books. It's much harder. But if you write romance, do it. (laughs) The only person I've seen do just amazingly well with middle grade is Adam Sidwell. Can I just say, uh, going with what Abel's comment is, I think, I mean, yes, good books will rise to the top, but I really think that 85% of a book's success is marketing. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there are some subpar books that are bestsellers and there are some books that are freaking amazing that get buried on Amazon, yeah. you know. So whether it's your publisher or yourself, the money that you put into that book is is often what makes it the success because people need to hear about it. So let's yeah. talk about that. How do you succeed within your publishing model? Because I think all of us know that we do a lot of the legwork ourselves. I mean, big publishers do some. And then if you're self-publishing, you get to make all the decisions. So what does it look like for you, Abel? How do you get your book out there? So I guess maybe some uh, professional background here. So I've worked in marketing for about 18 years. So I've got a I've got a pretty good background in the subject. And I guess if you're going to talk about the key to marketing, I guess there's I guess there's uh, two keys keys to it. Well, at least when it comes to a uh, book publishing. And the first one is to try to build a fan base, because if you build a fan base, they'll do a lot of the uh, legwork for you. Like, if you, you know, if you have people that are excited about your books and you can publish a book and they read it and they love it and then they go out and tell everybody about it. You know, there's different ways to go about and build a fan base. But if you can get that fan base built and grow it, they'll do a lot of the uh, work for you. But really what I, I what I've seen, at least the most successful thing I've done, at least in terms of marketing, is to write another book. So if you have like a series, it's like get the first book out, get the second book out, get the third book out, things like that. It just kind of builds on itself. I guess I'm hesitant to say which kind of marketing model works for different authors because the audiences are so different. But I, but the one consistent thing I've seen is people with you know who, who are good at building a fan base, however they do that, they can get that fan base and then churn out books fairly regularly and fairly uh, quickly are usually the ones that are the most successful. So it takes effort, though, specifically putting into the marketing. You actually have to 
you have to do a whole lot to get the attention. However, you get that fan base. Um, well, I mean, it depends. I mean, I mean, for my books, when I was at least like for my uh, relationship guides, you know, I have a huge fan base on that. And I, I mean, I kind of built an audience on accident. I kind of stumbled into a little niche of relationship advice that really wasn't being addressed. And so uh, my fan base kind of found me. And so, you know, I really wasn't going out there and doing that. My fan base just kind of, they had this problem and they're searching for answers. And so they found my uh, website and it just kind of took off from there. But nonfiction is a little bit different than fiction. With fiction, yeah, it is It is a little more uh, difficult, especially if you don't have an audience. But there's, you know, there's ways to do it. I know some people that have success with BookBub. There's services like a book funnel out there where you can get your book out there in front of avid readers, build a base that way. Honestly, though, I would say just, you know, as long as you're writing books and getting them out there regularly, people tend to find them. And and, and places like Amazon, especially like for self-publishing, um, Amazon's really good about like if you have, you know, whatever you're writing, romance, science fiction, they're really good about recommending books. You know, if people like a book and you have a book that's very similar to that book or similar to that author, it just kind of shows up. So, you know, I'm hesitant to say what's going to work for people other than I think if you're writing regularly and doing your best to build a fan base and build reviews on Amazon and other services, it just kind of works out. And I say this as a, you know, someone who's worked in marketing, there's no silver bullet to this. It's just, it's trying different things and figuring out what's, what's going to work for your audience because every audience is different and the way they want to be reached and talked to is different. So as far as being successful within a more traditional publisher, what do you guys think about that? I think helps if your publisher is Amazon and you're on their home page. (laughs) <laughs> that's true. Amazon does definitely plug their I will audience. second that. Well, Amazon is, I mean, that's where, what, 80% of books are sold now or some, and it's a crazy really? I would love to see that stat. It, I know. I'm, I'm going to have to go look up where I found that. It was a crazy high number, the percentage of books that are sold on Amazon versus, like, all other platforms. No wonder everybody hates me. <laughs> so that's our recommendation is that you just make sure your book gets on that front page on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, just that's that. just That's just, just what you do have that. to do. <laughs> But I mean, so the nice thing about traditional publishing is that you don't have to pay for your own marketing. The bad side is that you also don't get to choose your own marketing. So I've gone to like a lot of marketing classes and they have like all these things about pumping up your newsletter and getting a book, blah, 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 blah. You can't do any of that if you are traditionally published like you can only get a book bub ad if you can control the price of your book you're traditionally published you don't get a book bub ad you know so all these like little tips and tricks don't often apply to traditionally published authors i mean any like social media stuff you could totally pay for like an ad on facebook or promote a tweet on twitter you can totally have a street team and do that but what you're able to do marketing wise is a lot smaller when you are traditionally published But when you are marketed, you get a bigger audience. So again, it depends on how much your publisher likes you. And if you're like, like Jolene said, are you a lead title or not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. If your uh, marketing team gets on board and is super excited about your book, then you get lots of attention. The tricky thing that I ran into, especially when I first started with Albert Whitman, is that I had people who had been reviewing my independently published books. And I had this big, long list of people that I always sent books to. And they were like, we are not giving out that many copies, you know? And, and I think now their, their tune probably would have changed a little bit because they, you know, once you realize what a big deal it is to have a certain number of reviews on your, 
on your book that it's well worth it. But, you know, just like Charlie said, you don't always get to choose your mode or, you know, very often they'll run a book bub ad on something and I hear about it from somebody else. And I think, oh my gosh, if they had let me know that I could have promoted that as well. So I think every once in a while, things like that get lost in translation and you think, oh my gosh, I didn't know you were going to be at this conference or that conference. I was actually in that area and could have made it. So it's little things like that. And I think, but that has more to do with communication than anything else. Even though they were trying to promote you, like you could be standing two streets down and they wouldn't even know you were there. I think it's also important to recognize that if you don't put in the work, you're not going to stumble into good luck. But part of it is luck, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I laugh because still to this day, my two highest selling books are books that I independently published that I was at the point where my agent was like, do you want me to do this? Do you want to do it on your own? And I was like, you know what? I just feel like doing this one on my own and toss it up. And and then it's always really defeating when you spend a lot of time on your next independently published book. You think, well, if I did n- almost almost nothing on that one, then the next one I'm going to put all this effort behind it, and it's going to sell gajillions of copies, and then it just tanks, you know. So it's it's just an interesting kind of creature where you have to put in the work, no matter whether you're independent, small press, large press. You have to put in the work and put yourself out there, and you know, be a presence and find your audience and all those things. But I do think luck is always going to play into it, you know, right project, right place, right time. And that goes for no matter what your publishing model is. I think that's still valid. It's true. And like, we've been like, not talking very nicely about the big publishers. There are really great sides to going with a big publisher. I mean, if you are that lead title, and you get lots of attention, like, they have fingers in all sorts of different pies. They can get you so much more attention than you can get on your own. Right. And it's easier if, you know, I write like social issue books for young adults. It's really hard to find a young adult audience online. You know, my daughter's almost 15 and all her and her friends, they read on free platforms is what they read most of the time. So for me, having that lot, having my book in libraries, that's where most of my most of the letters that I get from readers, from teen readers, are teens who got it from their school library or from their local library rather than a book that they purchased themselves. So I always find that really interesting. So that's something that a big publisher can do for me. I and Caitlin, so- you were saying that we're like getting down on the big presses, but I mean, I will say that I would only indie pu- publish a book because the the bigger presses have all rejected it. Like I had a big press reject veins of gold. I had a small press reject veins of gold. And that's when I went to the indie. Like, so, you know, for me, it's scary for me to think of publishing a book all by myself. And I mean, it's expensive. Like you could, like they said, like you could do everything right. And if you don't have that luck, it's not your publisher who's losing out on that advance. It's you losing out all that money you put into it. Cause I mean, a good editor can cost you a couple of grand for a novel. And so I'm a big fan of traditionally published. Also, you know, you kind of get that badge of honor, like I passed the gatekeeper. (laughs) (laughs) Which I mean, sometimes I think we put a whole lot of weight on that. And it is, it's really lucky and amazing to be traditionally published, but that's not necessarily the right path for everybody. I mean, for me, the biggest thing about self-publishing is, I mean, it really is freedom. I don't look at it as control. I look at it as freedom. It's freedom to to experiment. You know, if if you want to, if you want to write something that's maybe a little bit different or kind of out there, I mean, you have a chance to go out there and see, you know, does this sink or swim kind of thing, you know, it's the freedom to kind of write as often as you want and publish as often as you want. There's no guarantee that it's going to work, but I mean, just as far as, 
the freedom to uh, try new things that more traditional publishers or small presses won't take on. I mean, it's it's a great chance, and it, it's also freedom to go directly to the uh, reader. You know, you, there, you know, there's nothing standing between you and the reader. You can go out there and find your own audience and build your own thing and do something a little bit differently and, and see how it works out. See, for me, I'm in Charlie's camp where I'm just like, that sounds terrifying. I don't want to do all of the work myself. I'm going to write books and I don't want to do anything else. I love what Abel said about feeling that sense of freedom. And that's what I feel. All right. Well, we should probably move on to our first chapter critique. So we kind of changed a little bit around here. We've gotten some feedback from some of the people we've critiqued. We usually don't give prescriptive feedback, which means we don't say this is how you should write this. We say, these are the problems that I see, and then you can rewrite it however you want. But a lot of people came and said, we would like prescriptive feedback, please, from all these professionals you're having read our manuscripts. And so you guys can feel free to be prescriptive if you want. Okay. I disagree with that. You're you disagree with that? Prescriptive feedback so worse. <laughs> I don't like I, I want to solve my helpful. own problems. I'm like, you tell me what's wrong and let me... Fix it. Well, yeah, well, I've had people like tell me how to do something before. I'm like, even if I like it, I'm not going to do it that way now because that wasn't my I know. Idea. <laughs> I'm the same way. I do the same thing. I actually feel the same way because I feel like prescriptive feedback, if you are a new writer especially, can sway you in ways that it shouldn't. So you guys give feedback however you want here. The submission that we chose for this week, I'm going to give you a quick summary. It's about a magical vampire of some kind. Like he doesn't suck people's blood. I don't think he sucks magic out of people, it seems like. He's looking for a specific person and he stalks a girl thinking she's this specific person that he wants to find. It turns out that it's not her and so he drains her and it's scary. <laughs> what are the things you guys liked about this? Um, it had a super intriguing start. Like, I was like, I was really interested, like, right off the bat. I'm like, whoa, he's got claws. Like, who is this guy? What does he want? What is a perfect girl? Like, immediately, I was intrigued. Like, first paragraph, I wanted to know what this was about. I'm right in there with you. I feel like, I mean, we got so much information and so much, like, yearning in that beginning part that I'm just like, what is going on? I want to know. It was the perfect amount of information. It was enough to be intriguing, but not so much that I felt like, like the author did a really good job of, of putting those those details of the things that the reader needs to know without taking us out of the action. And I thought that was really well done. Also, it's really fun to be like, wait, am I in a good guy's head or in a bad guy's head? And yeah. I always love not being sure. Like, I really loved that there was so much that was shown. Like you were saying, Jolene, I didn't ever feel like there was info dumping. I felt like it was yeah. perfect. I saw the beginnings of a magic system, but I didn't ever feel like the author was like telling me about the magic system. That was great. Right. Yeah, that was really well done. Yeah, I like the uh, creep factor. I think that some people are saying, I yes, just, you know, kind of really, kind of, yeah, just some of his uh, descriptions, like you, you know, like the set of the claws and um, stuff like that. I just, I don't know, the creep factor was high, which I like, by the way. So good job on that. <laughs> yeah, and like the end was just like the beginning. It's just like well, yeah. what's going to happen? Like I still, like I want it. I want to know. It reads a little bit like a prologue. Yeah. Oh, this is the, what's happening, and then like the next chapter will be in the the right girl's perspective. Yeah. <laughs> who, knows? who knows? We have to read it. But yeah, I definitely wanted to know more. Yeah, I would have continued reading for sure if there had been more. Me too. Yeah. Okay, so is there anything else we want to say on good things? Got some good thigh touching in there. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> definitely making promises about what kind of book this is going to be. I mean, with that included. And so mm -hmm. I, I thought that was all really well done. Yeah. Yeah. I felt like the reader was promised a lot of really interesting things to come. Okay, so things that might need a second look. I honestly only had really super little things like 
the repetition of using he at the beginning of a sentence in the first paragraph. I also noted that the syntax needed some shaking up. That's all I had on this was mm-hmm. fine line stuff like that. Some overused words or it was all very, very little nitpicky stuff. Yeah, it's, it's definitely promising. Um, one thing I want to comment on, and this is also just in general. So I feel like a lot of authors have this thing where they want to be really mysterious. And so nobody gets a name. It's just <laughs> the whole time. And like, and sometimes that works, you know, and that's great. But sometimes I, I just I want to, we're in his head. Like, who is he? It can be done. Well, I mean, any rule can be broken. But sometimes I think the attempt to be mysterious can be a little aggravating because it's like, well, I know everything about this guy except who he is. Yeah. 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 And that and that was kind of along my feedback. Um, someone said earlier that if this was a prologue, it would work good. And I would agree with that. But I think it's that same thing for me. It's like, this is a prologue. And you're just kind of setting something up. This weird thing happened. And, you know, it's the wrong girl. And then you're going in more into the story where we're getting, you know, who's the he and you get some more kind of details like that. I think, I think it works. If it's the first chapter, I guess I'd have to kind of see how the, how the second chapter is going to play out. But uh, I think it works better as a prologue than a, a first chapter. And that was really my uh, feedback is that if you're going to be kind of mysterious like this, I think it, it works in that sense, but maybe for the first chapter uh, of a book, maybe not. And uh, I guess it, part of it might depend how the second chapter plays out, but I would say it's, it's, it works better as a prologue than than chapter one. Yeah, you know, and like they might want the mystery because it's like, oh, he's attacking, blah, blah, blah. And then like later in someone else's point of view, you meet this guy and you don't know that the guy is the same person. And so you don't want a name. But even saying like, the Zorzak approach. You're like, what's a Zorzak? But it's not that mystery. But then you're like, you know what to call it. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to find out what the Zorzak is. Yeah, it's true because we're not even sure he's human because he takes off his hood and he's something and he also has claws. Yeah. So I guess we know that maybe he doesn't look human, even if we don't know what he is. And his face doesn't either. Um, When he takes his hood off, she has like a real visceral reaction to... Can I mention that? That's a, that's a critique I have. So yeah, so I remember that. And then she she has a silent scream. I yeah, Why I like that too. Silent? <laughs> like if I'm getting attacked, I'm gonna scream my head off. Like somebody help me, not like. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like oh. that's why I was like, why is it a silent scream? Like why not give us a little bit more? I mean, like he attacks and she has something glowing in her palm, and it looks like she's gonna attack him, and he binds her up with roots but I'm like well what what happened to the glowing in her palm like what happened to that did it shoot off somewhere else does it take a while to charge you know and like obviously I don't need to know everything right now but I would like to know like where's the glowing palm like did a root wrap around it now it's diffused just give me a little bit to know like why didn't her attack go through I would agree with that. On the silent scream thing, I actually thought about it. I I didn't have very many notes. And so I was really thinking about the little things that, <laughs> that came up. And so I was thinking, if the silent scream has to do with the magic system, that's great. I would just need a little bit more lampshading that had to do with him. Or if it's because she's being strangled, like I would it's like to know that. It's intact. But if it's just because it sounds cool, then it, it is kind of weird. The only other critique I would have for this is at the end when she, she, so we know she turns into Ash. I would love personally a few more concrete details of what exactly is happening. I know he puts his mouth on her wrist and now she's Ash. And it's like, I want to see that. Like, that sounds really interesting. I want to know more. So I would love more details about that. Well, it's dark enough that he kills her, but still says that he's frustrated. 
So yeah, I, I want to see, I mean, if you're going to go dark, just own it all the way. And I want to, I want to see that happen. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, guys. It was so great to talk to you. Thanks for putting this together. Thanks for having us. It's been a good conversation. I've, I've, yeah. I've enjoyed it. So yeah, me too. Thank you very much. Me too. It's so fun to meet authors and talk to you guys. Anyway, listeners, remember this is both a video and a podcast. You can watch us either on our YouTube channel or you can listen to the much more um, polished and beautiful version as a podcast. Um, what, we weren't perfect on round one, Caitlin? You guys were perfect, but sometimes I stutter and I just have to edit that up. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's given us ratings and reviews. If you haven't yet, please give that a look. If you want to ask us questions or tell us we're awesome, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Service Podcast. So for Lit Service, thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks.